I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hello, it's Allison, and welcome back to the podcast. If you are a regular weekly subscriber and listen to my podcast sequentially, then you are listening to this after the Mother's Day weekend. And uh, so I am uh, very excited to have my girls uh, coming this weekend. I'm recording this in advance of their arrival. And we are planning to do the Sporting Life 10K race, which is one of our traditions. Um, And so to you mothers out there, I hope that as Sunday has come and gone by the time you listen to this, that uh, you had a wonderful Mother's Day yourselves. I know for some people that means slowing down and being spoiled and having time with their children in a non-pressured way. And for other people, that is stepping outside the family and not having to deal with family matters and maybe hanging out alone, having time to yourself or with your girlfriends. So however you spent it, I hope that you are celebrated and relaxed and ready to get back at things. So for this week's podcast, it's a Q&A. And so thank you people who have been waiting patiently to get answers to your questions. Um, we've got some great stuff to dig into, so I will begin. The first one comes from somebody who listens to the podcast and follows my work, who's actually a, an Adlerian counselor that works with families. And they wanted to know if I had any information on uh, Adlerian conceptualizations around uh, attention deficit disorder. And um, she said that in her practice, one of the biggest things that gets brought forward by parents is that kids are not paying attention in school. They're not completing their homework. um, They're not being able to keep up with their responsibilities. She says that, or he says, most parents say it's due to ADHD. And then they put the kids on medication. Uh, I believe ADHD is being overdiagnosed. I teach Allison's techniques of leaving the homework task to the child, stop nagging, and encourage them. However, the parents say that when they do that, the kids end up failing classes and they have concerns for their future 
not getting into college, etc. At what point do you let kids fail or step in to save them from potentially long-term consequences? Uh, this is something that really comes up a lot. And as a mom, not qu- quite at that stage yet, I wonder about uh, this as well. So let me go into to the Adlerian conceptualizations, what we know about, you know, uh, ADHD and uh, and share some resources that I will put up in the in the show notes so you can dig into it a little bit further. I would agree with you that uh, ADHD is overdiagnosed. It's very interesting culturally that, um, you know, there's no virtually from an incident rate, none in France. (laughs) Um, And then we see trends that go from West Coast to East Coast as you track across the United States. You know, I've heard of schools in the U.S. where outside the principal's office, there might be as many as 100 kids lined up to get their lunchtime Ritalin uh, uh, pills. So it, it seems to go into these these pockets that don't make any sense. So I'm going to put up a link to the Sir Kenneth Robinson TED Talk, where he sort of dramatizes that a little bit more so you can see where I'm, I'm talking about that. Um, and then if we dig into the research, I um, defer to one of my mentors, Dr. Frank Walton, and I'm also going to put up a link to um, to his website And he has an article under resources there called Understanding and Helping Children Who Manifest Symptoms That Meet the Criteria for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Diagnosis. So notice he's saying helping and understanding. That's really what I want to do here today in in shorthand. Uh, And so that is to to look at the uh, diagnostic criteria according to the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, DSM we call it. And um, so I also use the language that Dr. Walton uses, which is a child meets the criteria for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. That's um, because what you'll see if you read the uh, DSM, it's a list, it's a list of descriptions of behaviors. And I would agree. I see those behaviors all the time too, but nowhere in the DSM does it talk about Etiology. What's the underlying reasons for these behaviors, these descriptions of behaviors to occur? So there's sort of two big names that you need to know if you're looking at the ADHD research. And these are two gentlemen that are basically in in war for who has the dominant theory. The first one who takes the stage is um, a gentleman named Dr. Barkley. Russell Barkley has long held the stage, and so it's very easy for parents to find his information. And he discusses it with the most sort of common description of saying that the hallmark symptoms of ADHD uh, is the one singular symptom to pay attention to. Although, like I said, there's a list of descriptions uh, in the DSM. But he basically says what it all boils down to is an impairment in the inhibiting behaviors and the delaying of a response. Behavior inhibition. Behavior inhibition. And so um, he really believes uh, that that this is something that is a biologically based inborn temperamental style and that it, it therefore predisposes them to be inattentive, impulsive and physically restless and that they have a deficiency in their capacity for rule governed behaviors. And that comes from um, one of the quotes from one of his um, articles that he wrote in 1994. And again, I'll, this is all of from Dr. Francis, uh, Dr. Frank Walton's website. So I will put the link so you can go read this for yourself. Now, his adversary, 
and uh, much more who I'm in 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 alignment with, and and so is uh, Dr. Walton, is the Pulitzer Prize finalist Robert Whitaker. Robert Whitaker disagrees with Berkeley, and um, he's also somebody who is very well researched on um, ADHD, and he points out that going through all the science, all the research. He says that there is um, claims to be made that ADHD is due to a chemical imbalance, and yet there's no scientific evidence that shows this to be true. There is no biological test for ADHD. The diagnosis, of course, is based on observations of a children's behavior. There is known, no known biological abnormality in children diagnosed with ADHD. I don't want to just spout stuff off without giving you the resources, so I will put that up in the show notes. So when we look at this, we have to say to ourselves, um, why else, what else could be going on to understand children's behavior? And this is really where I think Adlerians really <laughs> rule the day and, and have some of the greatest, deepest, richest insight is that we don't get hung up on symptoms. We go deep. It's a depth psychology. And we are constantly trying to understand human behavior. What else might be true? What else might might we need to understand in children that manifest behaviors of not using their impulse control. And so when we look at the relationships and the embeddedness of the child in their social context with their, with their family members, with their siblings, in their classroom, with their teachers, what we see is a child that really has seen no value in delaying their response or their, uh, their, their behavior guiding inhibitions uh, it's not important to them. It's very much in line with their private logic. They have a low social interest and they have a private logic that says people are in the world to be concerned about me, not for me to be concerned about them. So of course I have no impulse control. If the teacher's asking us to sit still and listen to the math, math assignment, and I don't care about math. I want to play. I'm going to get up out of my seat because I don't give a hoot. I do what I do when I want to do it. I'm not concerned with your lesson. I'm only concerned with myself. So this is somebody with a low social interest. This is somebody who has self-absorbed behaviors and has not figured out the give and take of social living that sometimes you need to sit and thwart your personal desires in order to um, care for your teacher who's trying to teach a lesson. And so when we see kids with um, the the unwillingness to 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 um, hold back their inhibitions in order for the social order to play out. It's poor training. It's poor parenting. And so these children generally have a belief that they are the center of the universe. If we look at their home lifestyles, you'll find that these typically seem to come from homes where there are very few limits and boundaries on the child. They're not enforced regularly or at all. Um, That the child regularly has their rights placed ahead of others. And so there is a self-righteousness the parent does a lot of talking but not acting, uh, Dr. Frank Walton goes on to say, uh, or the parent is extremely controlling. These commonalities, when we look at the, the households of kids with attention deficit order, tend to fall along some of these lines. Um, that we have kids who have, as a private logic, um, this belief that... that um, Adults will control your life if you give them half a chance. And you can bet that I'm not going to get them, to let them control me. So this is some of the private logic uh, that comes up, again, in commonality amongst different kids with attention deficit. Now, uh, wonderfully, Frank goes on to look at each of these 
um, mistaken private logics and parenting styles, and then gives a remediation and suggestions for change, and then ways to go about um, working with a child um, that meets the criteria for ADHD. And so we're going to increase their social interest. We're going to get better at limits and boundaries. Um, and so uh, just a few specific examples that he talks about is drawing a firm line when behaviors infringe upon the rights of others. A lot of these kids, we walk around in eggshells and they're allowed to go shipshod and crazy and no one, there's no consequences to not allow them to interrupt you to not allow the child to command your attention when your rights or the rights of others are being infringed upon and to give opportunities to children to be of help to others, especially by inviting children to be involved in tasks that are appealing to him and her. And he goes on to give many other suggestions on fostering social interest in children. So I hope that that gives you a bit of a starting premise (laughs) for working with, with some of your kids. And then to your question about where, you know, when do we allow kids to fail? It is so much better to allow kids to fail um, on a on a small recoverable um, scale by failing one test in grade four, by failing to not hand in your homework in grade six, by being held back a grade in grade nine, whatever it is, the consequences and the size of the mistake only gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So the idea of letting the reality of life unfold is a very important function. So no rescuing ever at any age. And um, that is what's going to prevent the catastrophic fail of them not making it to university or college. So it's actually the parents' fear of stepping in and rescuing, which is not preparing them. It's, It's actually evading a developmental task. So we think we have to really do a reframe so that parents start to understand the benefits of failure, not the fear of failure, so that they can see the opportunity um, and the growth that happens when they allow their child to experience the the uh, outcomes of the decisions that they're making, like like not not using their um, impulse control in order to focus on it on a paper, and therefore get a low mark. They will figure it out and parents can support that with encouragement, encouragement and reflecting back to them. You know, when it's important enough to you that you decide that you'd like to hunker down and work on it, I'm sure you can get your marks to go up to the level that you'd like them to. Having faith. Um, We can give structure, but we can't control and rescue. So um, hope that's helpful. All right, moving along. I've got a mom who says, I've started reading Children the Challenge. I've learned from it that my five-year-old daughter is extremely discouraged. She regularly, multiple times every hour of every day, hits, kicks, punches, and throws things at my two-year-old. I try to stay out of it as best I can because the book says to, and not to appear upset. The five-year-old seems to believe she's bad and does things to verify the story in her head. All of her communications with me is done with scowls, yelling, threats, hitting, spitting, bossing me around, or some combination of those things. As a result, I am now extremely discouraged and worried about her. I hate how unhappy she is. I know it's her choice and it's her business and how she feels about life. How can I encourage her so that she can be kinder and we can all get a break? She feels abusive to us and we don't know what to do or say. But no matter what we do, it makes her mad and she loses it. Um, So you are, first of all, reading a very good book. Make it all the way to the end. The book is Children the Challenge by Dr. Rudolph Dreikers. It's um, uh, it's an older book, so some of the examples might seem outdated, but the theory itself is is right on the money. Um, and um, Honey, I Wrecked the Kids was sort of 
my best crack at uh, presenting some of the information in that book, the Dreykersian perspective on Adlerian psychology um, in, in a more modern, digestible way. But you're absolutely right. Kids who feel good, do good. Kids who feel bad, do bad. Thank you, Dr. Jane Nelson, who's an Adlerian Dreykersian parent educator of Positive Discipline Founder, uh, one of our biggest brands. And so when we start seeing kids uh, acting in ways that are not conjunctive, when they're on the useless side of life, which is hitting, spitting, kicking, all those things, we know that those come from feelings of inferiority. She has not found her way to find her her place of belonging. She's not feeling solid in her relationships. And so she's somehow choosing to disturb and revenge um, rather than be conjunctive, get along, go along, help out. And uh, so there's something in there. And and to your point, she you, you sort of say you, you recognize the fact that that this is the way she views the world. But she's very young. She's only five. And so kids are very quick to change because we can change their private logic. We can change the way they view the world. We can correct their private logic. We can get them acting in more conjunctive ways. And we do that in the way that we interact with them. We don't sit down and give lectures about it. We behave in ways that train the child to see that the mistaken side of life and the mistaken approaches they're taking, the, the this disjunctive approaches, start losing their value. They don't work. They become less effective. And, which is why he's saying keep your emotions low around this, minimize the mistakes the child makes in trying to solve their problems of life on the negative side, and increase the amount of positive social reinforcement through engagement and smiles and appreciations and encouragement when we see behavior that's constructive and on the positive side of life. Of course, we have to guide the child, which is, you know, I think a better word than than discipline. And sometimes when we have kids like this, we're not good with our discipline. So absolutely make sure nothing you do is punitive. But it sounds like she needs more boundaries, more boundaries. If you just heard the first question I answered from Dr. Frank Walton's interpretation of attention deficit, um, that these kids need containment. They need to know that's not okay. We need to socialize them to say, That's not how we treat other people. We don't hit, we don't kick, we don't spit. So you need to be decisive on setting those limits and boundaries and keeping that child contained. But the way we do it has to be firmness, which is in the doing it, not the talking about it, the doing it. But the friendly part of it, which is we don't get upset about it. We separate the deed from the doer. It's like, oh, it looks like you're having trouble being in the same room as your sister. We'll need to have you sit over here on the steps until you can come back and show me your happy hugging hands, not your angry hitting hands. So we need to be decisive and swift and, and really set firm boundaries. When we don't have boundaries, our kids look for them. So they push and push and push and you get worse behavior, worse behavior, worse behavior before we finally step in. So in a sense, we train them to, to make their behaviors worse. So contain that behavior with boundaries. Learn how to set them with good consequences. At five consequences, logical consequences, they have to be done And like I said, it's so easy to call something a consequence when it's really a punishment. So make sure that it's related, revealed in advance, and that you state it and follow through in a friendly way. So you might just, you know, a very simple consequence was we need to feel safe in our home. If we don't feel safe, then we need to be apart. And so you could just use a simple timeout with a five-year-old. You know, can you be here and be uh, make us feel safe? Otherwise, you'll need to go settle down, you know, and you can, like I said, I just would move my kids to the side of the room or the the bottom step only as long as she would stay there. And if she would, you know, pop up, I'd say, great, looks like you're ready to to come play safely again. Come join us. We miss you. We like it better when you're here with us. So the ratio is one to five. Every time you have to do a correction, you need five positives to counteract that one negative. 
And mostly we're just not very good at saying positive things to kids. We're very good at saying, you know, um, don't hit your sister, eat with your mouth closed, hang up your coat. We give a lot of directives of correction, correction, correction. We rarely say things like, oh, thank you so much for um, waiting so your dad and I could talk and at the table without being interrupted. And, oh, I noticed that you, you managed to get your plate halfway to the kitchen sink. Um, um, that's great. It was only halfway to the kitchen sink. It wasn't the whole thing. Oh, you really know your mind. You know, you went right to the puzzle that you want to play. You know about you. Just anything. There's positive, 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 encouraging things to say. So minimize mistakes. Uh, increase your commentary on things that are pro-social and positive. And get her helping. Get her contributing. Keep sharing why she's important. She has to feel loving and belonging. She has to feel acceptance, right? That's the psychological underpinning uh, to which the child must solve that problem. And we need to kind of clear the path towards useful contribution so that she can see like this way, this way, come over this way, help us contribute, feel important, let us appreciate you. And so it's through that helping and contribution that they get an affirmation on the constructive side of life that they belong, that they're important, that they're needed, that they're loved, that they're accepted. And so get her busy. Misbehaving kids are underemployed. I love that expression. Um, and, and again, making sure that we show faith in the child that every day she could choose differently. When you worry about her um, and when you um, get discouraged about her, we say a discouraged parent can't encourage a child. So when if she's convinced you that she's a pill and uh, a handful and is somehow, you know, that kid, the problem kid, She's going to keep moving in line with your expectations. So we got to get you encouraged so that you can see the bright light that's underneath this kid and help show her the way. Be unwavering in your own attitude. So don't worry. Hopefully hearing this will encourage you and just say she's just a creative kid trying to find her way. She's trying to solve life's problems. Her life problem is she's trying to find a way to belong and be significant. She probably feels threatened by the arrival of a younger sibling who's sweet and innocent. And when you're under two, you don't get disciplined. So of course she looks like the golden child. And so show her all the ways that she is just wonderful the way she is right now and get her feeling useful in the family. So I hope that's, I hope that helps you there. Um, there's all kinds of resources on encouragement and the art of encouragement in, uh, on my website. So check those out as well. Next question. My son, 11, has a lot of difficulty with frustration and anger. He has uh, gotten much better over the years due to his participation in various programs. He goes to a forest school, some counseling, some emotional control groups at school, but he is a reactive kid. He does not tend to start battles, but if things get too far, he reacts in outbursts. She mentions another incident that, that came up on one of my Facebook lives here uh, where he, he took a pull out a knife and threatened his sister with his knife. He got suspended from school as a result of some accumulation incidences of kicking, destroying a garbage can out of anger, threats by a school messenger towards a child that he had kicked. I think there's a whole story behind the incident and I saw the messages from the other kid leading up to the threat and while I do not condone how he reacted, it does take two to fight. I'm at a loss with him and I'm not sure where to go from here. I think he may be lying about what happened despite me saying that I won't punish him or be mad. I just want to find ways to talk about this and help him work it out. There is a slight minute possibility that the story he is telling is the truth as well. Bottom line, I don't think that all that really matters. My question to him is what is going on that is making him so angry and hurt inside that he feels that the only way to respond when he feels threatened emotionally or otherwise, and how can we help him feel loved and safe? Let me know your best course of action. 
Just like the other beginning points, we always start with trying to understand the child. What would have to be true for this behavior to make sense to this child? We always want to try to step into this incredible position of compassion where we, we get enough data and information to say, if I was this kid in this family, in this school, um, what would have to make sense for this be- behavior to be true, right? To see with the eyes of another through his private logic, his belief systems, to hear with the ears of another, to feel with the heart of another so that you really can step into his world. And you're his mama. You probably know his, his world better than anybody else. Um, but we have to do some interpretation So we have this rubric that we look at, again, digging at these private logic. And and here's the the rubric that we're trying to, to look at to understand behavioral choices. It goes something like this. I am dot, dot, dot. Others are dot, dot, dot. Life is dot, dot, dot. Therefore, to feel safe and belong, I must dot, dot, dot. There's the behavior. So could it be something, and I don't know, I'd have to do you know, some therapeutic work on him. Um, but, but it would be something like, I am unlikable. Others are out to get me. Life is unfair. Therefore, to feel safe and belong, I must attack and defend at all costs. Something like that. So I'm not saying that's an accurate one because I haven't worked with him, but just so you see how it, how it goes, right? Um, one of the ways that we try to get at these rubrics is to look at early childhood re- recollections. And so, you know, we look at, you know, can you tell me a memory from the time that you were, you know, I like to go, I know he's only 11, but go back to before they were in school because zero to five or six, that's sort of where our private logic is developing and collect a bunch of these memories and notice what's going on in these memories. Um, the memories of, of people who, the ERs of people who act like this usually have memories of wrongdoing, of being startled I was walking along and I dropped my ice cream cone and my parent yelled at me. I didn't know that was coming. It wasn't even my fault. Um, so something where there's a feeling of injustice, unfairness, things were out of my control. I was I was mistreated, something like that. But it's never one ER. It's always getting a collection of them and looking at themes across them. And of course, as therapists, we take hours and hours and hours of training and studying on doing analysis on early recollection. So I can't pretend to, in one short podcast, uh, bring you up to speed on how to therapeutically apply that technique. But that's how we do it in counseling. And we start to see these themes. And then in therapy, same thing, where then we start to challenge the accuracy. We try to move the private logic more in line with common sense. Are they really unlikable? Do pe- is people really out to get them? Because we have a self, it's a self-fulfilling bias. You've got to know that in his class, he's probably got a reputation as the one who acts out, which means it's probably been hard to have friendships, which reinforces that he's unlikable. And then, of course, he explodes. And so then the teachers keep an eye on him and say, well, keep an eye on that kid because you never know when he's going to go off. So the minute he's starting to get a little dysregulated, they probably come down on him, which reinforces that it's unfair because there was some other kid who was wriggling in their seat and starting to act up and they didn't get the same treatment. So you can see how it becomes self-perpetuating. So we need to get the school on board. We need to get you working with this. And um, we really want to work to chip away at the idea that hold on, maybe there's maybe there's data points to say life is fair. Maybe there's an er- a cognitive error happening there. Um, and if life is unfair, how do we work to make it more fair? I would probably, from an anger point of view, want to work with him on ideas around what strength and weakness looks like. 
And so learning to emotionally regulate and not be reactive is something that is really strong, not something that's weak and needs to be defended. So, you know, I think about the guards at Buckingham Palace where people come up and yell insults into their face all day and they have to just stay calm and on guard. Or, you know, people in uh, in athletics, not hockey, right? Now in hockey, you throw off your gloves and you beat each other up. I don't know. That's just ridiculous entertainment. The game's changed so much. But they don't do that in Olympic hockey. So if you're in sports and, and you know, people are, sh- all the teams... The, the fans in the stand are screaming at you. Um, you know, you've got to be able to hear that and keep your game on and, and, and not be reactive because you're not going to be the best team player. Your, your, your skills are going to drop if you get emotionally reactive to what the fans are, are from the other team are screaming at you. Navy SEALs who have to make really important decisions in the face of, of stressors. So we want to show, we want to model what it's like to not take the bait of somebody else to not feel not feel that our power has been minimized when somebody is coming and and attacking in the way that this friend must have been with the um the emails or whatever where he was trying the tit for tat you know he couldn't he couldn't let it go so there's something about weakness there strength defending oneself that I would kind of want to show him another way to be strong that isn't aggressive uh that's kind of where I would go with that so um yeah, and and of course you've already done some things with counseling. It sounds it sounds like things have improved. Keep going. Get in, get get more counseling. A counselor, can, play therapist can work with that. It's a great a, a great results in in shifting private logic if you work with an Adlerian counselor who specializes in children. Okay, so we've got one more to go here. Hi, Allison. I have a question for your podcast. I'm loving your podcast, by the way. We are an Adlerian household and have been since our children were born. My husband actually works at the Adler Charter School in St. Petersburg, Florida. We have met you before at the conference as well. Yay, the school's still alive and running. That's so fantastic. I I presented at the school years ago, and yes, I do go down to that conference occasionally. We have two children. They are 12 and 7. Our 7-year-old has trouble with goodbyes with friends or family leaving our house after a visit, either for the day or if they stayed for a few days. She gets very upset and gets anxious before and during the time we are saying our goodbyes. She will go to her room and just refuses to say goodbye and is sad for a while after. Sometimes our goodbyes are very sad as it's my family leaving and they are from New Zealand and we don't know the next time we're going to see them again. But now she gets upset every time people come over and leave. We have tried to just let her be, but that's hard on the family and friends who want to say goodbye to her. We would like for her to say goodbye to people, um, but don't want to make a big scene and force her to have to say goodbye. Any advice you'd have to do with helping with goodbyes would be great. So this is such a great example of child guidance, right? Discipline child guidance. This is why I said like, you don't really discipline a child for this. This is child guidance. This is about teaching manners. Um, and it's also a little bit about her her emotional regulation and making choices, Kind of going back to the ADHD, right? We we want to we want her to 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 make some different choices for herself that are more in line with the, the protocols that when people leave our houses, we walk them to the door and we say thanks for coming. And yes, it can be sad, and we can cry and not know when we're going to see them again, and offer them a hug and tell them how much we enjoyed them. That's socializing them for appropriate adult behaviors that they're expected to do when they grow up. Um, you know, if she was 25 years old and people came to visit her uh, apartment and it was time for them to leave and she went into the bedroom and she uh, sulked and cried, um, uh, uh, that would be odd behavior. So this is you learn in your household, uh, your childhood home. So now's a good age to be teaching this. Right now, the choice that she's making and she's trying on for size is, and again, these are pre-conscious choices when we make behavioral choices, 
She's refusing uh, to accept that these people are going. She's giving you a little bit of protest, um, pouting, protesting when you when you they're being made to pay with her mood. How dare you leave me? Um, but but she retracts. She doesn't hang on to their pant leg and beg them to stay. She storms away. And so she's sort of demanding that people pursue her and placate her. Um, and if you're going to leave, then I'm going to show you that, that I'm upset about it. So that's her methodology. That's her attempt. That's her creative solution at the moment. Um, it's pretty broad. It's a pretty strong stance. I don't know. Does she have a belief that if she's unhappy enough, they'll stay? Um, you know, it hasn't worked so far. So I, what I would do is I want to show her that she doesn't, it's goal-directed behavior. I want to show her that her, her, that her approach doesn't reach the goals that she was intending. So I would absolutely validate her emotions. I never dismiss emotions. I might say something like, you know, it looks like you're really upset that our fun time has come to an end. It, it's hard when we have to say goodbye to our friends and then let her go, let her do what she's going to do. But I wouldn't pursue her to the, to the bedroom. I wouldn't go in and try to change her mood. Um, she can, she can emotionally regulate around that. And I would just, from your um, friend's point of view, I know that might be difficult in the moment, but saying something that just either in advance, you might say, Hey, we're working on goodbyes. This one, just so you know, um, uh, we're, we're still polishing that up a bit. And I, so I just might say, if you can't kind of warn them in the, uh, in advance and privately, I might say something in the moment, right in front of the child, like, um, we're working on our goodbyes. That's still pretty hard for us right now. And, and that's it. And then just hopefully they will understand that you don't want them to pursue and make a big deal and, and put more energy in, into her, um, dramas at the moment. Um, so I would just minimize any feedback around disjunctive non-prosocial responses, again, minimizing mistakes and increasing anything that she does. Like, well, I'm so glad that you had the courage to come to the door. I know how hard that is for you. Um, you know, oh, I can see your tears are saying that you really have a hard time with your goodbyes. You're, you're really being courageous today, um, by sticking around anything to notice the positive. Um, and then, yeah, let, let the chips fall where they may. Um, she'll start to realize storming off and going to your room doesn't get the guests to stay, doesn't get anyone to placate you, um, doesn't change their travel plans, doesn't make anyone pity you. It doesn't really get anything. If it doesn't get anything, then why stay miserable? <laughs> Might as well go to the door and say goodbye. And now you'd actually get a five, five more minutes of visiting in. But she's got to learn that experientially from what you do, not, not, not through talking, just through doing. So I hope that's helpful. Thank you everyone for your questions. And I will see you next time for our next guest next Monday. Remember to take a moment to like the podcast, subscribe and let your friends know. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast. So thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Hold up. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.